Uh, thank you all for coming to our lunch today. Uh, the topic of discussion uh, for Cato's uh, Hill briefing today is uh, reviving federalism. I'm John Maniscalco, the Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute. And uh, in Federalist 39, James Madison uh, reminds us that the Constitution is neither a wholly national nor a wholly federal constitution, but a composition of both. And any good student of the Constitution knows that uh, this is taken care of in the Constitution. Article 1, Section 8 enumerates the powers to the national government, and the Tenth Amendment reaffirms the principle of federalism by reserving all powers not delegated to the national government, to the states, and to the people. But in the last few decades, we have seen the balancing act of dual sovereignty tipped overwhelmingly in the favor of the national government. There are many reasons for this, but one particular reason is the existence of federal aid grant programs. Um, and this, the reason for this is because the Supreme Court has said that Congress can use the spending clause to induce states to accept federal directives for issues that would normally fall under the purview of the states. In other words, the states send to Washington money only to get it back with strings attached, effectively federalizing all issues and subverting what remains of the Tenth Amendment and perhaps destroying the notion of reserve powers altogether. That's the problem Senator Buckley um, addresses in his book, Saving Congress from Itself. And uh, we have him to speak about his book today. We'll also hear from Chris Edwards and Roger Pallon, two Cato scholars who I'll introduce, I'll introduce everyone now actually. Uh, Chris Edwards is the Director of Tax Policy Studies at Cato and the editor of downsizinggovernment.org. He's a top expert on federal, state, tax, and budget issues. Before joining Cato, uh, Chris was a senior economist on the Congressional Joint Economic Committee and an economist with the Tax Foundation. Uh, his writings have appeared in the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and many other newspapers, and he's the author of Downsizing Federal Government and co-author of The Global Tax Revolution. Roger Pallon is the founder and director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies. He is the publisher of the Cato Supreme Court Review and is an adjunct professor of government at Georgetown University through the Fund for American Studies. Prior to joining Cato, Pallon held five senior posts in the Reagan administration, including at State and Justice, and was a national fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution. His writings have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the National Law Journal, Harvard Journal of Law, just to name a few. And he holds a BA from Columbia University, an MA and PhD from the University of Chicago, and a JD from the George Washington University School of Law. Last but certainly not least, we have James L. Buckley, who is a member of a very exclusive club. He has held senior positions in all three branches of the American government. In 1970, I'm proud to say he was elected from my home state of New York to the United States Senate on the conservative party ticket, beating both a Republican and a Democrat who, perhaps unsurprisingly from in the state of New York, split the liberal ticket so that he could become a member of the United States Senate. Um, in 1981 to 1982, he served as Undersecretary for Security Assistance at the Department of State. He was the president of Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty, which he uh, held in Munich, Germany. And in 1985, he was appointed to the Circuit Court, uh, U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit and became a senior judge in September of 1996. Uh, but perhaps his most important legacy may be the Supreme Court case in which he was the lead plaintiff, Buckley v. Vallejo in which he uh, tested the campaign finance restrictions that Congress had enacted in the wake of Watergate. This ruling struck down limits on independent expenditures, candidate self-financing, and overall campaign spending. And although the ruling upheld restrictions on direct contributions to candidates, 
Buckley v. Vallejo represents an important victory for the notion that political campaign spending is a form of constitutionally protected speech. So what we have here today is an accomplished man of principle, and we are very lucky that he drove all the way down here from Connecticut, I believe, so that he could be with us today. And so with that, I'll turn it over to Senator Buckley. I guess I can read it. <laughs> Good morning. Uh, I better put glasses on. <laughs> well, I want to say that I'm here courtesy of the Cato Institute in two ways. I've received an invitation to be here, of course, but I'm here to discuss a book that couldn't have been written uh, but for a series of papers by Cato's Chris Edwards. Those papers demonstrated the extraordinary range of collateral costs that were triggered by a particular category of legislation that now accounts for one-sixth of federal expenditures. I refer specifically to the grants and aid programs that provide subsidies to states and their subdivisions for purposes that the Supreme Court continues to recognize as the exclusive business of the states. I have long known such programs existed because on the rare occasion that one was proposed back in the early 1970s when I was in the Senate, I routinely voted against it as involving matters that were none of Congress's business. Um, <clears throat> it was only recently, however, that I became aware of how pervasive they have become and of the political reasons for their proliferation. My epiphany began a dozen years ago when, on my retirement and return to Connecticut, I subscribed to a nearby city's daily papers. I soon found it filled with reports of federal grants in support of an astonishing variety of purely local purposes. These included, for example, a $1.5 million grant of highway trust funds, for the rehabilitation of a vandalized railroad station that had long since been converted to private non-transportation uses, nearly $2 million to replace a one-lane bridge connecting two small communities a dozen miles from my home, financing for an art center honoring Catherine Hepburn, and a half million dollars a grant to widen two streets leading to a school. That last is my favorite example of congressional imagination. Those sidewalks are being widened courtesy of an act of Congress titled the Federal Safe Routes to School Program. Its explicit purpose is to fight juvenile obesity by encouraging children to bike or walk to school. I'm not aware that the parents of the children attending that school feel that that is the most cost-effective way to slim their children, but no matter, you don't turn down Santa Claus even if the money he distributes comes from the federal taxes you pay or from the debt that those children will have to repay. Congress finds its authority to create such programs in a 1937 Supreme Court construction of the Constitution's spending clause, which empowers it to spend money, quotes, 
to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. Mischief lies in the words general welfare. The Supreme Court recently summarized that holding as enabling Congress in pursuit of its understanding of the general welfare to use federal funds to, quote, induce the states to adopt policies that the federal government itself could not impose. Thus, Congress is now licensed to concern itself with areas in which it is forbidden to act by offering to subsidize a whole spectrum of state activities on the condition that the states accept Congress's directions on how they are to discharge their own responsibilities. Because those programs deal with matters beyond Congress's constitutional authority, the court has made it plain that participation in them may not be coerced. As I know from my own experience as a senator, those in elective office are always in search of ways to maintain closer contact with their constituents and of new ways uh, to please them. The Supreme Court's 1937 decision opened up a vast new horizon for doing precisely that. It was not until the Lyndon Johnson administration began invading areas that had formerly been considered off limits to the federal government, however, that uh, uh, members of Congress came to realize the political opportunities that this new court precedent had opened up for them. Thus, while at the outset of that administration there were just 132 such programs, today there are more than 1,100 of them. In 1970, when I was elected to the Senate, those programs distributed $24 billion. This coming year, they will distribute almost $641 billion, which will amount to one-sixth of total federal spending, and all for purposes that are the exclusive business of the states. A surprising aspect of this development is how few people, including those here on Capitol Hill, are aware that those figures do not begin to reflect the full cost of those programs or of the vast changes they have brought about in the way we now govern ourselves. Because those grants come with the most detailed instructions, their total out-of-pocket cost to the federal fisc includes not just the amounts distributed, but the expenses incurred in drafting regulations, screening grants applications, and ensuring, ensuring that recipients comply with the federal rulebook. The cost of that additional work has been estimated at $1 for every 10 distributed for a total of about $64 billion in the coming year. The major cost of the federal government, however, may well be the diversion of congressional attention from the critical issues that only Congress can address. <clears throat> Studies confirm that its members spend heroic amounts of time on their work those studies also confirm that they spend a major portion of their time attending to constituent concerns that, unfortunately, tend to focus on matters that are the responsibilities of governors and city councils rather than those of a congressman. Matters such as public housing, job training, education, homelessness, and unfilled potholes. 
That last uh, comes to mind because a recent senator's attention to urban minutia actually earned him the nickname of Senator Pothole. But those are precisely the kinds of matters to which those 1,100 grants and aid programs are addressed. The costs at the state level are so diverse that it is impossible in this presentation to describe them all or to give an adequate idea of their cumulative impact. But here are some of the kinds to which I refer. To ensure compliance with the detailed regulations governing their use, federal grants and uh, add layers of state and local administrative expenses to the costs of the subsidized projects. They also impose one-size-fits-all requirements on states as different as Arizona, Alaska, and New York, thus preventing their officials from applying common sense and local knowledge in securing the best, best value for the money expended. Furthermore, they can trigger a host of unfunded mandates. I believe there are more, more than a thousand of them today. So, mandates such as the Bacon Davis Act's requirement that the equivalent of union wages be paid for construction work involving the expenditure of any federal dollars, which can add as much as 20% to the cost of work. They distort state priorities by offering lucrative grants for purposes of often trivial importance. They encourage the waste that comes from, with spending someone else's money, what economists refer to as cost externalization, and they undermine accountability because state officials bound by federal regulations cannot be held responsible for the costs and failures of the projects they manage. And because those regulations are made by distant bureaucrats, Frustrated citizens who are directly affected by those programs have lost their ability to decide how their tax dollars are to be used. To compound the injury, I have found no evidence that the intervention of the federal government in the delivery of state and local services has improved their quality, but there is ample evidence of its failure to do, uh, to do so. The site, uh, to cite just one example, the feds first became involved in education in a significant way almost 50 years ago with the enactment of the Elementary and Secondary Act of 1965. Yet as Andrew Colson has demonstrated in his exhaustive 2014 study, State Education Trends, during the succeeding decades, there has been no improvement in the quality of education nationally, despite a tripling of inflation-adjusted dollars spent per child. On the other hand, about the only encouraging developments in the field of education, such as vouchers and charter schools, are the results of state and community initiatives. This litany of costs notwithstanding, Advocates of federal grants argue that they are warranted for two reasons. The first is that the federal government is able to attract the greater, expert, a greater expertise from the states. Uh, that is no doubt true, but it begs the question as to whether academic prowess uh, <clears throat> trumps the hands-on experience and personal accountability on which the states once relied. 
compare the Centers for Disease Control's bungling of the Ebola crisis with New Jersey's simple policy of quarantining those exposed to the disease. The advocate's second argument is that federal grants redistribute money from the wealthier states to the poorer ones, thus enabling the latter to maintain appropriate standards in such key areas as education. That is a seductive argument because the per capita income of the 10 poorest states is only about 68% of that of the 10 richest. Variations in state cost of living, however, can muddy the analytical waters. To cite one extreme example, Mississippi's per capita income is 75% of Hawaii's, but its cost of living is only 55% of the latter's. I doubt, though, that anyone would suggest that Mississippians who inhabit our poorest state should send care packages to Hawaii, which is our 17th wealthiest. Redistribution, redistribution is thus a weaker argument than it appears. But if redistribution is indeed a proper uh, function of the federal government, and I don't know if it is, there is a far better way to achieve that goal without imposing webs of re federal regulations on all the states, rich and poor alike. The federal government could simply provide the have-not states with block grants having the sole requirement that the recipients use the money for welfare or education or some other specific purpose. Under that approach, Washington would not be telling the states how to meet their own responsibilities. Advocates of the programs also assert that because states participation in them, uh, participate in them voluntarily, they cannot complain about the costs and conditions that flow from the grants. Experience, however, has demonstrated that congressional bribes are almost uh, are very hard to resist. Money from Washington is still regarded as free, and state officials are delighted to accept grants, strings and all, rather than having to justify the full cost of the projects they freely undertake with federal subsidies. What makes declining grants particularly difficult is the fact that if a state does not participate in a program, its share of the money, money that is derived in whole or in part from its own taxpayers, will go elsewhere. Richard Epstein and Mario Loyola have written an elegant article that concludes that federal grants are, in fact, inherently coercive. I recognize, of course, that 23 states have, in fact, refused to participate in Obamacare's expansion of Medicaid coverage, but that is the exception that proves the rule. Having experienced the very substantial collateral costs of their existing Medicaid coverages, those uh, states uh, quite reasonably declined to compound them. There is only one way to resolve the problems that have resulted from Congress's preoccupation with these programs, and that is to terminate all of them. They must all go, because if none is, uh, uh, <coughs> because none is free of the costs I have described. If any exception is made, Members of Congress who find them an easy way to scratch constituent backs 
we will be encouraged to launch a new wave of grants on the assurance that theirs will be exempt from all the problems that have plagued the existing ones, and it would take another generation of fact-finding to prove them wrong. Because federal transfers now constitute about 30% of state uh, revenues, however, Congress cannot cut off the flow uh, uh, overnight. Therefore, it should terminate the programs by converting all the grants the states and localities are currently relying on into single, no-strings-attached block grants, one for each state, that would be phased out of a period of a half dozen years. That would allow Congress and the states the time to adjust their respective tax codes to accommodate the successive reductions in the federal transfers. That, in sum, is my book's modest proposal, a reform that at one strike, at one stroke, would reduce federal expenditures by one-sixth, rid Congress of a major dis, uh, distraction from its essential national responsibilities, and restore the conditions for a healthy federalism. I realize, of course, that it is one thing to propose a major reform, and quite another to secure its adoption. Mine will be especially difficult, <coughs> it will be, excuse me, it will be especially difficult in this case because so few people are yet aware that a problem exists that it is in, that is in urgent need of reforming. I hope, however, that my book will succeed in triggering a public examination of the program's costs and institutional consequences that in due course can bring about fundamental change. As it happens, this is a particularly propitious time to seek a reform of the kind I propose. Recent headlines concerning incompetence and worse at the IRS, Veterans Administration, and other federal agencies have undermined the myth that Washington necessarily knows best, and confidence in the federal government has never been so low. Uh, it also appears that Americans still understand the virtue of the Constitution's allocation of governmental responsibilities. According to a survey of 2013 polling data, today's Americans believe that state and local governments are best able to handle the following responsibilities by the indicated percentages. Housing, by 82% of those polled, transportation, 78%, education, 75%, and welfare, 69%. Those are precisely the kinds of responsibility that the Constitution has preserved for the states, the kinds that federal, education, uh, federal agencies have taken over. It will take time, I know, for the merits of my proposal to sink in, but the facts are there. If enough Americans learn of the grants program's true cost, they will know they have everything to gain for the, from their termination, both as citizens and taxpayers. And as we have learned over and over again in the past, an aroused electorate is, can achieve political miracles. Nor should we give up on Congress. Confronted with an objective examination of 50 years of experience with federal grants to the states, 
members of both sides of the aisle may come to stigmatize those programs just as they have the earmarks of recent memory. What is required is that the merits of the proposal be debated. It is my hope that this book will trigger that debate and I thank the Cato, I thank the Cato Institution, Institute for giving me this opportunity to initiate that debate here on Capitol Hill. Thank you very much, uh, Senator Buckley, for those remarks, and thank you all for joining us here this afternoon. Um, it's too bad that uh, the book is not going to be out until next week, and you will have to wait till then to get a copy, because this is a very fine book, and I urge you all, those of you especially who are here working on the Hill, to dip into it, because it is just rich with the kinds of details that you can use in preparing um, memoranda for your um, principles, and so um, let me urge you to get a copy. Now, um, I am um, going to discuss briefly some of the um, constitutional implications of Senator uh, Buckley's book, and I'm going to make three basic points. Let me just give them to you right now. The core of the problem uh, that he treats is too much government, uh, especially at the federal level, or as he writes, and I quote, Congress's current dysfunction is rooted in its assumption over the years of more responsibilities than it can handle. In other words, it doesn't do uh, the things that it is authorized to do well because it is doing things that it is not authorized to do and isn't doing those well either. Secondly, um, the core of that problem is the change in the climate of ideas that took place uh, with the progressive era which the New Deal court institutionalized. And thirdly, with respect to the federalism aspects of Senator Buckley's thesis, it's not entirely a case of Washington's having imposed its will on the states, requiring a balance to be restored, as Michael Grieva argued in his 2012 tome, The Upside-Down Constitution. The demise of federalism is considerably more complicated than it seems at first, and the states themselves are far from blameless in this. Um, so let's, uh, let me start with the first point, too much government. Uh, the Constitution isn't silent on that point, of course. Uh, it's uh, not, uh, as many modern liberals would have it, an empty vessel to be filled by transient majorities. It's a document rich in substantive guarantees, all aimed at securing liberty through limited government. And I will make that point by... Uh, consulting the documents, uh, which I think make them clearly. Uh, they're written in English, it's my mother tongue, and I do believe I've read them correctly. You start with the Declaration and you see that it uh, speaks of liberty, individual liberty, to be secured through limited government. That's the philosophy of government the framers took with them when they sat down 11 years later to draft the Constitution. Then you look at the Constitution and you'll see that the preamble starts in the same place that Jefferson's Declaration did in the state of nature tradition from John Locke. The idea is that we the people, in order to uh, uh, secure the uh, ends that are set forth next, 
do ordain and establish this constitution. In other words, all power starts with the people. They create the government. They give it its powers. The government doesn't give the people their rights. They already have their rights. They're born with those rights. Now, you then look at the document itself, and you will see that Madison, its principal author, had before him the problem of how to create a government that was strong enough to secure our rights and do the few other things that we wanted it to do, but yet was not so powerful and extensive as to violate rights in the process. And he did that through the checks and balances that we're all familiar with. First of all, power was divided between the federal and the state governments, with most power left with the states. It was then separated at the federal level among the three branches, each defined functionally. There was a provision for a bicameral legislature with each house constituted differently. There was a provision for, an, in, for a, a, a unitary executive to see that the laws be faithfully executed, provision for an independent judiciary to check the political branches to make sure that they conformed to the strictures in the Constitution, and finally provision for periodic elections to fill the offices. But the main restraint on overweening government took the name of the doctrine of enumerated powers, and I can state it no more simply than this. If you want to limit power, don't give it in the first place. And we see this doctrine right from the very first sentence of the body of the Constitution. All legislative power herein granted shall be vested in a Congress. By implication, not all power was herein granted. Look at Article 1, Section 8, as Senator Buckley said, and you will see the powers that were given to Congress. There are only 18 such powers. And then when you get to the last documentary evidence from the founding period, namely the Tenth Amendment, you see this doctrine spells out expressly. It reads, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. In other words, the Constitution establishes a government of delegated, enumerated, and thus limited powers. And then the Ninth Amendment makes it clear that we have rights both enumerated and unenumerated. So in the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, you've got a recapitulation of the philosophy that was first set forth in the Declaration, namely the government has only enumerated powers. If you don't find it in the document, the government doesn't have it. By contrast, we have enumerated and unenumerated rights. It was, in other words, a vision of live and let live, each of us free to plan his life as he thinks best, as he works his way through life, with government there to secure those rights and to do the few other things that we've authorized it to do. Now, we lived under that regime more or less for 150 years. It wasn't perfect, to be sure. There was the oblique recognition of slavery. The framers wrestled mightily with the institution. They knew it was inconsistent with their founding principles. They hoped it would wither away in time. It didn't. It took a civil war to end slavery and the passage of the Civil War Amendments, which provided for the first time state or federal remedies against state violations of our rights. In other words, it changed federalism fundamentally by giving us a federal remedy against the state violations. The great shift took place, of course, during the progressive era, and so I come to the second point I want to make. The progressives thought of government not as the necessary evil that the framers conceived of it, 
but rather as an institution of good, an engine of good, an institution to solve all kinds of social and economic problems. They were looking to European models for that, uh, German uh, schools of good government, British utilitarianism, and the like. And the, they were trying to institute their programs at the state level where they succeeded to some extent. But by and large, the courts stood athwart those efforts until we get to the New Deal and the focus of the progressives, now called liberals, to uh, institute their programs at the federal level. The court, during the first Roosevelt administration, again stood athwart those efforts until after the landslide election of 1936 when Roosevelt, in January of 37, unveiled his infamous court packing scheme, his threat to pack the court with six new members. There was an uproar over that in the country. Not even Congress would go along. Nevertheless, the court got the message, and there was the famous switch in time that saved nine, as a result of which it turned the Constitution upside down. And it did it in three main ways. First of all, it eviscerated the doctrine of enumerated powers, the very centerpiece of the Constitution. Secondly, in 1938, it bifurcated the Bill of Rights and gave us a bifurcated theory of judicial review. And then finally, in 1943, it jettisoned the non-delegation doctrine, the doctrine that begins with the very first word of the Constitution that says, all legislative power shall be vested in a Congress. Congress was passing so many laws that it could not keep on top of it, and so they delegated ever more of its, uh, their legislative power to the agencies that they were creating. Some 300 and more exist in the city today. And so you had with that the Constitutional Revolution of 38, 30, 37, 38, and 43, which has given us the modern executive state, the welfare state that we know and love so well. The problem with this is that the doctrine of enumerated powers, the core of this issue, was effectively uh, eviscerated. The general welfare clause, which was understood by Madison, Jefferson, and everybody except Hamilton as authorizing Congress to tax and spend for the powers that were enumerated under that phrase, general welfare. The definition of general welfare was the carrying out of those 17 other powers. In the Butler decision of 36, in dicta, the court came down on Hamilton's side who had argued that the General Welfare Clause author was an authorized Congress to have an independent power to tax and spend for the general welfare. That couldn't possibly be right, said Madison, Jefferson, and others, because if that were the case, then any time Congress wanted to do something that was not authorized to it, it could say that it was taxing and spending for the general welfare and make an end run around the doctrine of enumerated powers. So too with the Commerce Clause, which was written mainly to ensure free trade among the states, as in the 1824 decision of Gibbons v. Ogden. Here too, the 1937 court turned that constitution on its head and held that Congress had the power to, to uh, regulate anything that affected interstate commerce, where there's nothing that does not, at some level, affect interstate commerce. And so now the floodgates were open not only to the redistributive state, but to the modern regulatory state as well. And so the government grew in leaps and bounds after that until we get the situation that we get today. So let me conclude with this third point 
about federalism. Now that word is not to be found in the Constitution. It has to be inferred from the structure of the document, and of course it is discussed in many different ways throughout the Federalist Papers. And when you look at it, you will see that there are, looking at the original understanding and the modern understanding, two very different notions of federalism. There is first of all the original understanding of competitive federalism, and I will discuss that in the following way. This pits power against power, the federal government against the um, the state governments, and it maximizes liberty in two crucial ways. First, it respects the principles of subsidiarity, which holds that responsibility should rest with the lowest or least centralized competent authority, with the individual, then, if necessary, with local, state, and finally, national officials. That maximizes individual liberty while keeping authority as close to the individual as possible, affording the individual a greater opportunity to check errant authority. And second, competitive federalism maximizes liberty by making states compete for the allegiance of citizens who are free to move. Where better do we have an example of that than in the recent Boeing move from a part of its uh, operations from Washington State to South Carolina, where we have, fortunately, right to work still available to states. And only because of that did you have competitive federalism operating there. By contrast, after the New Deal revolution, we have something called cooperative federalism. Under the General Welfare Clause, grants and aid of the kind that Senator Buckley has discussed, uh, we have the feds offering money. States and municipalities take it because they have to pay only part of the costs of the project in question. It sets up a series of perverse incentives where everybody thinks he's spending someone else's money. And of course, when someone else is paying, the demand is infinite because the cost is zero. The, uh, and then under the Commerce Clause, progressives push for state regulations uh, as they did during the progressive era. But given the pressure of competitive federalism, they go to Washington to get relief in the form of federal regulations for the whole nation. So therefore, they are not disadvantaged by the state next door that hasn't imposed those regulations and therefore will be attractive to the firms and people who will move to that state. So if you can get the federal government to regulate nationally, then you have solved your competitive federalism problem through cooperative federalism, which is nothing like what the framers had in mind. Finally, let me just leave you with a note of hope, and it's uh, similar to the one that uh, uh, Senator Buckley left you with. As you know, under Obamacare's state exchanges, uh, the uh, 36 states have declined to, uh, to set up uh, state exchanges. And so this is something of a new phenomenon, and it's hoped that we will be able to build upon that, that states are finally recognizing that there really is no such thing as a free lunch. Thank you. Thank you very much, Roger and Jim, and thanks a lot, Jim, for coming down from Connecticut and for writing this uh, great book. I hope you can all uh, go get yourself a copy. Well, the whole federal aid system, in my view, is a damaging uh, mess. Jim is right in his book to say, 
it is, had, it is having a profound effect on how we govern ourselves. I think that is absolutely right. There are few, if any, advantages of the giant federal aid system and many disadvantages. The aid system encourages excessive spending, creates a lack of political accountability, and stifles innovation at the state level. And to, to add a little bit onto the history that uh, Jim and Roger uh, touched on, throughout the 19th century, really before World War I, there were many efforts to get the federal government to start subsidizing state and local activities, but they were routinely shot down in Congress or vetoed by presidents. So to give you one example, in 1830, Andrew Jackson vetoed a bill to provide aid for a road project in Kentucky, saying it was, quote, purely of local character and a subversion of the federal system, unquote. So that was the general thinking in the 19th century. Prior to World War I, Federal spending on average was only about 3% of GDP, a tiny share of the economy, mainly because the federal government kept its nose out of state and local matters. Unfortunately, that started changing in the early 20th century. Uh, lobbyists basically figured out that if they wanted subsidies, rather than going around to the 50 state capitals, it would be much more efficient to go to the single legislature in Washington to look for their subsidies. So a good early example of this was the 1916 Federal Highway Bill, the first big Federal Highway Bill. Uh, automobiles, of course, had just been in recently invented. And by the early 1910s, there was already two national lobby groups uh, in Washington pushing for new federal subsidies for highways. Uh, that 1916 bill was essentially written by the lobbyists, and it was a good first e an example of the big mess of the aid system uh, that we have today. Uh, that 1916 road bill was accompanied by all these regulations that were poured down uh, onto the states, telling them how to run their uh, highway departments uh, and to file all kinds of paperwork uh, to Washington. Initially, there was some resistance to uh, the expansion of aid, Calvin Coolidge, uh, in his uh, budget message in 1926, uh, talking uh, about the aid system, said, quote, I am convinced that the broadening of aid is detrimental both to the federal and state governments. Efficiency of federal operations is impaired as the scope of aid is enlarged, and the efficiency of state governments is impaired as they turn over to the federal government more on responsibilities that are rightfully theirs. Uh, also in opposition in 1924, a uh, Virginia Republican, uh, Henry St. George Tucker, who was, had also been a law school dean and the head of the uh, American Bar Association, he rose in the House to oppose a new proposal for a federal grant. And here's what he said. He said, quote, if it is a federal function, why not have the federal government do it? If it is a state function, why shouldn't the state do it? Why should the two governments do the same thing at the same time when only one can legally do it? The double cost, of, of course, is not only evident, but how does the federal government get the money to pay its part? Only by taxing the people in the state. The money collected from the people of the states is brought to Washington and sent back to the states, but it never gets there. It's eaten up by federal bureaucracy, unquote. So there was resistance, but unfortunately, the lure of federal money uh, ultimately bought off uh, the state governments as they agreed to more and more of these grant programs. Uh, Jim mentioned uh, Lyndon Johnson. Uh, uh, some, to some uh, libertarians, you know, of FDR is sort of the great Satan, but uh, really it was Lyndon Johnson on, uh, on federal, federal aid. Federal aid was quadrupled uh, during the 1960s and has continued to expand since then. Let me highlight two areas that I've written about recently uh, regarding aid. FEMA, I recently uh, did a Cato paper on FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. 
it pumps out about $2.5 billion a year in federal aid to the states. This aid makes no sense. On the one hand, FEMA uh, gives grants to state and local governments to buy things like heavily armored vehicles and other sorts of fancy homeland security equipment that they don't really need. This spending is very dubious. Uh, a report uh, by Senator Coburn a couple years ago looked at a lot of this spending. But on the other hand, FEMA gives uh, money to uh, state and local governments, to police and fire departments, for things that they would have uh, purchased uh, themselves anyway, which raises sort of the issue, what's the point of the federal aid? So for example, FEMA has a $600 million aid program that goes to fire uh, departments across the country. Uh, it goes to fire departments to buy things like uh, fire trucks and, that's, and that sort of stuff. Uh, this is crazy. Local funding of fire departments is a 270-year tradition, at least in the United States, since Ben Franklin started the first fire department in 1736 in Philadelphia. Uh, local governments can do this themselves. They don't need uh, federal subsidies. There was a story a, a couple years ago in the San Antonio newspaper uh, that shows some of the problems with, with this sort of federal aid. The city was all ready to build a new fire station, $7 million. You're just about to, to break ground on this station. Uh, then at the last minute, they got a FEMA grant uh, to, to build the station. Well, that really threw everything into flux. They had to rebid all their contracts. Uh, they had to, uh, all these federal regulations, like environmental regulations, were imposed now on the city. Uh, long story short, the, uh, the cost of the station went up $2 million, and it was a couple years uh, behind schedule. Well, this is crazy. Uh, one of the themes of Jim's book is that aid is ruining efficient governance uh, in America. I think that is absolutely right. And you see with all these aid programs, it makes state and local decision making just a lot less efficient. Another area I've written about recently uh, is infrastructure spending, highway spending. Uh, just about everyone in Washington loves highway spending, uh, except me. I would, I would get rid of a lot of it. Um, uh, for many reasons, and actually Emily Goff at a Heritage Foundation up in the front row here has written a lot about this sort of stuff too. Uh, federal highway aid, it, it causes all kinds of problems. A lot of the spending is misallocated. Uh, federal highway aid is not based on sort of actual market demands. Um, it's really, it's a, a lot of the states are, are winners and losers. So for example, Texas has long been a loser uh, in the federal highway sweepstakes, which is uh, unfair and not economically sensible. There's actually a recent uh, uh, academic study, which was interesting, it looked at the Federal Highway Trust Fund and found that it tends to transfer money from lower income states to higher income states on average, which makes absolutely no sense. Uh, federal highway aid also encourages overspending, which the, the other two speakers uh, t talked about. Uh, there's a lot of cost overruns of major projects funded by the federal government. The Big Dig in Boston is a classic example. The cost of that project ended up quintupling. Uh, when state governments and local governments get money for free from the federal government, they tend to spend it uh, sort of profligately. Uh, third, uh, federal aid distorts local decision-making. And a classic example of this you can see with federal transit aid. So for decades, the federal government has been pumping money to local governments for transit, bus and rail systems. But because the federal government funds the capital cost of rail system, uh, it has tilted local governments to buy expensive light and heavy rail systems rather than more efficient bus systems. So a big advantage, in my view, of withdrawing federal aid completely would be that state and local governments make more efficient decisions based on uh, their local costs and benefits. And finally, a point that Jim uh, raised, the federal, all these federal subsidies come with regulations that raise the cost uh, of doing business such as the, 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 the uh, Davis-Bacon rules. 
So can we cut federal aid? We absolutely can. I, I would uh, hope that the new Republican majority in the two chambers uh, takes a long, hard look at federal aid and starts to cut it. Uh, Jim's proposal to abolish, to completely abolish aid to states uh, is going to seem a lot radical to a lot of people on Capitol Hill, but let me sort of suggest a halfway uh, reform. Uh, let's consolidate the aid from 1,100 different programs down to just a handful of block grants. Let's slash spending, and let's end aid for uh, many uh, particular types of activities, such as the K-12 schools. Uh, that halfway reform would still seem very radical to many people on Capitol Hill, but that is, in fact, the structure of aid in Canada. Canada has a federal system like we do. They have provinces. We have states. But rather than 1,100 uh, aid to local go uh, lower government grants uh, like we do, they've only got three. They have three block grants, so they have a much more efficient system. They spend less. And, for example, there, there's absolutely no federal funding for K-12 education in Canada. It's purely a local matter uh, in Canada. Now, liberals, of course, would think that's absolutely crazy. You know, you need federal subsidies for K-12. But Canadian kids actually do better on international uh, standardized tests than American kids. So, uh, and it's a similar story with transportation. There is no uh, highway funding at the federal level in Canada. It's all a provincial local matter. And as I've written about, Canada actually has a more innovative transportation system these days. They've got more privatization uh, in highways and other uh, infrastructure than we do. Uh, ironically, uh, we have the 10th Amendment to our Constitution, but Canada is a much more decentralized federation. If you look at overall government spending in this country, it's about two-thirds federal uh, one-third state local. In Canada, it's flipped. It's only about one-third federal, two-thirds provincial local. Uh, and it works well. So my point here in raising Canada is that we don't need all these federal subsidies. We don't need the federal micromanagement. We really don't. We have a workable, real-world model here of a decentralized federation that works well. So Jim's uh, call for uh, ending all aid uh, my view is entirely sensible, and I'm really glad he put all these arguments together concisely in his book, which I'd, I'd urge you to, uh, to take a look at. Uh, thank, you, uh, thank you for coming, and I think we can open uh, for some Q&A.